This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. That device that many can't live without could help fight the virus we can't wait to live without. That is if Canadians install the new app meant to alert them of potential contact with a COVID-19 carrier. Among the app's first users and its chief boosters is the Prime Minister. Now that we have the system up and running in Ontario, in our largest province, uh, it will hopefully be be up and running for local public health agencies right across the country in the coming weeks. The Canadian government released its COVID-19 exposure notification app, COVID Alert, earlier this month, starting first in Ontario with plans to implement it in the Atlantic provinces and British Columbia in the near future. I've written how I've made the decision to install it, noting that the voluntary app does not collect personal information, nor provide the government, or anyone else, with location information. The app underwent two privacy reviews, engaging both the Federal Privacy Commissioner and the Ontario Information and Privacy Commissioner. Patricia Kasim, the newly appointed Ontario Commissioner, had only been on the job for a few hours before she was dealing with an app that was bound to attract public attention. She joins me on the podcast to discuss the app, her review, the interaction between different governments and commissioners, and her hopes for what the app may contribute to limit the spread of COVID-19. Commissioner Kasim, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Michael, for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. Well, I'm really glad that you've decided to join, and I want to start first off by congratulating you on your new appointment. Uh, It's really exciting to have you as the Ontario Information and Privacy Commissioner. We've known each other for a long time, and it's great when you see really great people going into these kinds of positions. We need this sort of leadership in the country. And I I suspect that there was no easing into this position in particular. You're new to the office, but the COVID alert app, uh, I assume, was one of the very first things that you had to deal with on your plate with a very compressed timeline to address it. And so I'm hoping on this episode we can talk a bit about the review that you conducted, the challenges that you faced in working across during across jurisdictions in the midst of a pandemic. But why don't we start with the basics of the app, uh, assuming not everybody is familiar with it yet, or certainly not everyone's installed it yet. Can you describe COVID alert for those that are still unfamiliar? Sure. Uh, I'll start with a few general um, concepts, and then maybe I'll give you uh, more specifics about how the app works. But generally speaking, it's a free mobile app that people can uh, voluntarily choose to download for use either on their Google Android or Apple iOS mobile phones. And basically, the app uses Bluetooth signals to send and receive a series of uh, kind of randomized codes back and forth with other mobile devices that have also downloaded the app and happen to be in close proximity uh, to your phone for a certain amount of time. So a couple of things to say right from the beginning. It's important to point out that this is an exposure notification app. It's not a contact tracing app. And the difference is important in that unlike a contact tracing app that might track location or identify who you've been in contact with, when or where, 
an exposure notification app only tells you whether your mobile phone has been in close proximity to another mobile phone belonging to someone who's uh, tested positive. So it does not identify who they are or where or when uh, you may have crossed paths, so to speak. Another important feature of the app is that the information about potential exposure to someone who's tested positive for the virus really remains between you and your phone, and it stays in your phone. It's not reported to any central government database, for example. Once the data, the app detects potential exposure, it automatically provides the user with advice about what you should consider doing, like contacting telehealth or answering a self-assessment questionnaire, possibly self-isolating and going to get tested. But that information is for you and for you to consider and hopefully act upon for your own health and safety and that of others. And the last general comment I'd make before I go into specifics about the app is really um, to emphasize that the app is intended only to supplement conventional public health methods of tracing individual contacts with others in an effort to contain the spread of the, the virus. So as many people have said, it's not intended as a silver bullet that can replace um, all of those other very important human-based methods and support systems. So if you'd like, I can give you a bit more specifics on how the app technically works. Sure, that would be great. Um, you know, I'm glad that you. I'm glad that you highlighted. You know, first and foremost, how it's an exposure notification app rather than a contact tracing app. I've had, we've done prior podcasts uh, with Jill Clayton, the Alberta Information and Privacy Commissioner, about their AB Trace Together, and Lillian Edwards about sort of the global approach to contact tracing. But the decision to, in Canada, move with an exposure notification app is, I think, notable, and I'm glad you highlighted it. If you can get it into some of the technical specifics, that would be terrific. Sure. So the COVID alert app uh, automatically transmits from your mobile device certain randomized codes that change about every five minutes. And other people's phones that are within a certain distance um, receive and log these randomized phones. And conversely, your phone logs the randomized codes transmitted by others' uh, phones nearby. And these codes, these randomized codes, are only kept in your phones for about 14 days. Uh, the, the transmission of Bluetooth signals and logging of randomized codes only occur on users' phones. So as I said before, there's no government involved in that process of um, exchanging signals, Bluetooth signals. So if an Ontario user tests positive for COVID-19, they're going to be asked if they wish to receive a one-time key that they may then choose to enter into the app. And if they choose to do so, that authorizes the Ontario system to send a hashed de-identified code to the federal server that returns what's known as a one-time key. And then again, the user is given the choice to enter that key into the app. And uh, they'll be asked whether they agree to notify everyone who's been in close contact with their phone for the past 14 days, and then they're going to be asked to reconfirm their authorization to send this one-time key to the server again each day going forward for the next 14 days. So basically looking forward and looking back 14 days, after which these one-time keys are deleted on a kind of a continually rolling basis. 
The central server uh, maintains a master list of these active one-time keys uh, submitted by users who've tested positive, and each day the app downloads this master list of one-time keys and continually sort of compares it against the list of randomized codes that are being generated in your phone throughout the day. And if there's a match, uh, the app will notify users of a possible exposure, and then it offers links, as I said, to additional information and helpful resources on what to do, uh, where to go, and possibly get tested. So that's, the, in essence, why this is um, known as a decentralized model, because all the matching is done on users' phones, which has been touted as the most privacy-protective um, alternative or approach. And no point is a government involved in, in and uh, through this matchmaking process. That's a really good summary of, of the technical side of what's taking place. It's, it's, I think, noteworthy how many times you emphasize about user choice in there. User choice, of course, to install, but user choice whether to notify. It kind of seems to be a consistent theme alongside the decentralized model that you just highlighted. Now, off the top, uh, I played a clip with that included the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, introducing this app. It's a federal government initiative. There's expectations or hope that the app will ultimately roll out across the country in various provinces, in all the various provinces, though it started in Ontario. But given that it's a federal government initiative, how does your office enter into the picture? Aha. Uh -huh. So that's an interesting question. Um, as you know, part of uh, my office's mandate is to ensure that uh, any programs or technologies deployed to protect the health and safety of Ontarians are also protective of uh, their privacy rights. And although, as you said, the app is being spearheaded by the federal government, it's intended and hoped to be rolled out across the country in coordination with provincial and territorial governments. Ontario happened to be the first province uh, to launch the app, hence uh, our involvement. Uh, although the, uh, the app, uh, as I explained, is being supported by a federally developed infrastructure, some aspects are particular to the province or territory in which it's being used. Uh, so th that's why the federal government led the privacy assessment and the risk assessment with respect to the technical infrastructure and the platform, whereas Ontario did its own privacy assessment on the Ontario-specific features of how the app interacts with our public health information systems here, which are subject to oversight by my office. So let me give you an example. In Ontario, some of these province-specific aspects include how a user exchanges uh, a hash code they receive uh, when they test positive for a one-time key that they then may enter into the app, um, as I explained before. Uh, as well, the Ontario-specific Ontario aspects of the app include uh, the links that the app will bring users to when they've uh, been potentially exposed um, and uh, help guide those users towards public health resources, information, and uh, advice. So to that end, we started consulting with the Ontario government very early on in the process, in fact, my understanding is that the consultations with my office had begun on the predecessor app called COVID Shield at the time that uh, were uh, underway well before I started my mandate on July 1st. 
And uh, so the uh, Ontario government consulted with our office uh, early on and as it began exploring options for using uh, smartphone technology um, for the purposes of developing an exposure uh, notification uh, process to help control the spread of the virus. And this was before the federal government chose uh, the COVID shield model as the national platform that they would go with across the country. Um, let's see, what I can tell you about the uh, early discussions um, between my office and the Ontario government at the time was uh, clearly an emphasis that uh, only non-identifying information should be used and that robust security features would have to be designed and baked into the platform from the very outset. And we also made it clear that any Ontario-specific features of the app would be subject to review and oversight by the uh, Information and Privacy Commissioner's Office of Ontario, and that we look forward to, re to reviewing uh, the PIA. Uh, if you fast forward, uh, we were then informed that COVID Shield would be developed as the national platform under the new moniker of COVID Alert, and that's uh, when the federal government um, began taking on its development as a national platform and infrastructure. And our office's recommendations then um, pivoted and began to focus more specifically on the Ontario components of the app and uh, the memorandum of understanding that was going to be um, developed and negotiated between both governments, the Ontario and federal governments. So uh, on that, we coordinated our review with the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, who's our counterpart federally, of course, as they were being consulted by uh, the federal government departments involved in developing the app. And on our side, our main interlocutor was the Ontario Digital Service on the uh, Ontario government side. So we worked together, uh, the OPC and us, and we each reviewed the privacy-related aspects of the app from our respective uh, perspectives and jurisdictions. And uh, we were both guided by the principles um, that had been enunciated in the joint statement issued by the federal, provincial, and territorial commissioners back in May. As we coordinated our review, we uh, completed and issued a joint press release stating ultimately our support for the app's use uh, subject to the ongoing monitoring of privacy protections and effectiveness. So that's how uh, we got involved and, uh, and coordinated with, uh, with our federal counterparts. Okay, that's some really interesting insight, and clearly a lot of moving parts, a lot, a lot of different departments yes. involved, which is really interesting to see how all of that comes together. You know, I think we've seen quite a lot of interaction in, in recent months between federal privacy commissioner and provincial commissioners. We, of course, saw it with respect to Facebook on a number of situations, facial recognition technologies. So we're seeing this take place more and more. Uh, can you describe a little bit further how it, how it plays out? You know, if you can take us a little bit behind the scenes when you You've got an issue such as COVID alert that raises implications both at the federal level and at the provincial level. What is, what's the kind of that workflow like between different privacy commissioners? Sure. So uh, I, this one was um, actually particularly interesting. I'll explain why. But it started literally on my first day. Um, I 
joined uh, the office the first day after um, Canada Day and uh, already had a call waiting from Danielle Terrier, the federal commissioner, uh, which would be followed by a federal, provincial, territorial call of all the commissioners across the country uh, to discuss the COVID alert app. So talk about baptism by fire, really. Uh, you're right to say that FPT coordination and collaboration has pretty much become mainstay now as uh, the recognized and most effective way of leveraging resources and enhancing a positive impact, and that's certainly something which I intend to engage in very actively during my mandate, for sure. What was particularly interesting here was the number of actors involved and the different interactions between all of us. So as I explained before, the Ontario government consulted us, onboarded many of our recommendations, as many as they could, um, in fact, since some aspects and uh, several aspects were outside their control and would depend on the federal government agreeing to them. Uh, on their side, the federal government was consulting with the OPC uh, to address specific aspects within their remit. Um, meanwhile, uh, we were collaborating with the OPC and coordinating our responses insofar as they overlapped particularly on the points we both thought should be uh, reinforced in the memorandum of understanding between the governments. Uh, and then the Ontario and federal governments interacted um, between each other directly, of course, through MOU negotiations. So as you said, lots of moving parts here. And what was fascinating to see was the impact we were having uh, real time on the negotiation process and the final MOU as both uh, our office and the OPC were reinforcing the same key messages of privacy protection to each contracting party, bringing them closer to agreement on some of these key points, uh, which we were very happy to see reflected in the final MOU. So there's really no question that um, this leveraging effect resulted in more persuasive impact and certainly stronger resulting protections in the final MOU uh, and in the COVID alert app. It's interesting to to hear how the the MOU really was was influenced and affected by the the joint work that was taking place. Now the that letter itself identifies the, the letter that you put out identifies a number of really interesting things. Uh, first off, I thought it provided a bit of a timeline, and you've done that a little bit in uh, in your response already in terms of how some of the things were playing out. Your office notified being notified of a provincial app in May, the decision a month later to shift to this national app, and then the review of COVID alert. As part of that review, do you, do you have a, a sense of why there was the decision within the province? And it's not Ontario is not alone in this regard to move away from a provincial-specific app into one that's designed to be national in scope? Um, I don't have any particular uh, uh, insight into that uh, choice. Um, however, uh, Ontario was no different than any of the other jurisdictions and uh, in Canada and elsewhere, frankly, around the world, which, as you know, have all been e very eager to see how digital apps can help slow the spread of the virus and help enhance... Um, uh, traditional public health contact tracing methods, and um, it, it, it uh, made sense uh, that Ontario wanted to develop a provincial app, just like Alberta did with its AB Trace Together app, which you referred to earlier and uh, was the subject of a previous podcast uh, with uh, Commissioner Jill Clayton. Um, it, 
Here in Ontario, uh, my understanding was um, it began with volunteers at Shopify, an Ontario-based company that developed source code compatible with the Google Apple API uh, for uh, an exposure notification app. Um, and at the time, it was to be called COVID Shield. However, because the high user uptake is so key to the ultimate success and effectiveness of the app, it became clear I think for all concerned, uh, that a single app nationwide would have a better chance of being effective than a patchwork collection of different apps which might not be able to communicate with one another in any interoperable way. And so this unified approach became even more important also as restrictions were easing up and uh, and you know interprovincial travel was uh, would would eventually start to increase. So I think if anything, on the federal government side, after considering various models and options, they chose uh, to go with the Google Apple interface and develop that into the national platform and infra infrastructure uh, to be rolled out across the country. And uh, I suppose it made sense to build on the uh, work that had already been uh, invested and gone into COVID Shield, which was um, built using the same platform. So uh, I don't have any further insights uh, into that um, uh, decision, both provincially and federally, but it certainly, I think, um, was part of the calculus that this app probably presented the best chances of success and the least privacy infringement, and so that was the app that was ultimately uh, chosen as the uh, national candidate. Yeah, no, that, and, and certainly that makes sense. I was part of a, a study that CIFAR put together to provide advice to the National Science Advisor, uh, Mona Nemer, that that also recommended that one of the one of the core considerations in rolling out these apps was that if you were going to do it, that a national approach made a whole lot more sense for some of the reasons that you've just articulated. Now, now one of the things that I found most interesting about your letter, as well as the review from Commissioner Terrian, was an emphasis on necessity and proportionality. It becomes really, uh, it seems to be a core consideration that the finding ultimately that the app met a necessity and proportionality standard. I guess it, it, that begs at least a couple of questions. First, whether or not you see that as being part of privacy law, that you need to make the case that, uh, that you meet a, a certain threshold of necessity and proportionality. And I guess even beyond that, especially coming from the privacy world, how does a privacy commissioner's office assess this issue, particularly given that this surely involves uh, an analysis of the health, public health-related benefits, which seems core to making a determination that uh, this, in fact, meets that standard. That's a, a great question. Um, the, the concepts of necessity and proportionality were, of course, among the principles that uh, were recommended in the joint statement of the federal, provincial, territorial commissioners on uh, the development of, uh, of uh, contact tracing and other apps. Uh, so that, uh, it, 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 the, these are concepts that, at least in among the principles, were explained 
and described as the number of questions that needed to be considered in the development of such apps, uh, including whether the purpose underlying the, the measure was evidence-based, um, whether the measure is carefully tailored in a way that's rationally connected to the specific purpose, whether the measure is likely to be effective in achieving that purpose, and whether the measure is the least intrusive option for uh, pursuing that purpose. And uh, you, you will not find um, the words necessity and proportionality uh, in every uh, statute, of course, across the 13 jurisdictions, but they are a close proxy for a, a number of different principles in the different statutes that are used to assess whether a certain infringement on privacy um, uh, is uh, justifiable. And uh, um, you, you'll recognize, of course, these concepts in other forms. Um, the most important that's probably unifying across the board is uh, these are very, these uh, questions, this assessment of necessity and proportionality is very similar to a Section 1 analysis under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms that's required to be met to just justify any state infringement on human rights, including privacy. Um, this, the, the same questions that go into the assessment of uh, necessity and proportionality were taken up by the Federal Court of Appeal when they were interpreting a provision in the federal uh, uh, private sector privacy law, PIPEDA, um, uh, under Section 5.3, which is the overarching requirement that collection use and disclosure of personal information can only be done for pur purposes that a reasonable person would consider appropriate in the circumstances, and that's with or without consent. And so there again, the Federal Court of Appeal adopted that same framework um, of necessity and proportionality, those four similar questions uh, to help inform this reasonableness requirement. In our own uh, privacy law here in Ontario under the Health Privacy Legislation, or PHIPAA, Again, you'll find overarching principles, um, namely that health information custodians are prohibited from collecting or using personal health information if other information will serve the purpose, which speaks to a concept of necessity, and uh, another prohibition from collecting, using, or disclosing more personal uh, health information than is reasonably necessary to meet the purpose, which speaks to proportionality. So. Um, and, and you can start to track these concepts, I think, across um, the various statutes, uh, if not, you know, in terms of the uh, explicit concepts, but certainly in terms of the principles that uh, underlie them. Um, but your question is a good one around how do you assess uh, this issue of effectiveness. Um, certainly as privacy reg regulators, we are not experts in the domain, and we very much uh, count on um, uh, on organizations or government institutions to um, make the case. Uh, but more importantly, as in this situation of COVID alert, to build in the mechanisms so that there's a process for continually assessing the ongoing effectiveness, in this case, say, of the COVID alert app, so that um, when it is, as long as it is, as it is shown to be effective, it, uh, the collection uh, can, of personal information or the, the process can continue. 
Um, but as soon as uh, the app is shown to be no longer effective, then there's a way of sunsetting the application and uh, discontinuing the, the app going forward. So um, those are the ways that as privacy regulators, we try to ask the right questions to see if the case can be made or at least to build in or encourage uh, building in the processes for continually assessing and ensuring ongoing effectiveness. Yeah, that's helpful. Do you have a sense, you mentioned the, the need to make the case that it's effective. Do you have a, a, a view on, on what that would be? You know, what does effectiveness mean for, for this app? Well, I think it would have to be shown, um, I think, on scientific evidence that the uptake of the app over time is at such a level that is actually shown to be effective in helping curb the spread of the virus. In other words, that there's enough of a mass um, uh, mass number of I individuals making use of the app uh, to actually impact uh, it behavior and uh, catch um, or identify risks early enough to try to curb the spread of the uh, of the virus. Okay, no, and that's and I, th I think it's a, that that's a good response. Certainly highlighting the the importance or the direct connection between effectiveness and how many people are using this. Uh, now, usage has actually been one of the big responses in the immediate aftermath of the release, particularly whether or not this is available to enough people. It tends to work primarily with relatively new phones. They don't have to be phones in the last year, but they're, they're generally speaking some of the newer phones. People with older, say, iPhones have found that it won't work on their devices. Up until, I think actually this morning, we're recording this on a Friday, up until this morning, it wasn't working even on the, the latest version of the beta version of, of Apple iOS, but apparently that has been now a addressed by Apple, which I think highlights some of our dependence here on Google and Apple and the direct link to whether or not the app, the, you know, enough people can, can adopt this. So the, the power of these large tech companies is obviously really significant from a policy perspective and an implementation perspective. Thought, do you have thoughts on, on the role these companies are playing and any concerns uh, about the dependence to a certain extent we have on them? Uh, that's a that's a fascinating question. Of course, um, you know, in in many ways, there is uh, an, an, an emergent and emer emergent uh, an urgent need, I think, to uh, reach out and uh, collaborate across sectors, public, private, um, in order to uh, address obviously a, a critically important issue that's affecting the the the, the world quite literally uh, and globally. So uh, there's no question that. Uh, there is uh, there is a critical need to work across dividing lines and to leverage uh, whatever resources, uh, intellect, uh, capacity uh, there is to try to address uh, this vexing and wicked problem. Um, it, it does raise questions. I mean, you've raised uh, particular issues about, you know, some uh, possible fairness and equity uh, issues that arise. Uh, from having to uh, have these phones in the first place, uh, so access to the phones, access to certain versions of the phone, um, 
And so those are important questions uh, to address. There's also my understanding that uh, there was um, Google and Apple only permit one app per jurisdiction to use their API, which is also interesting in terms of both maximizing effectiveness, as we said, to um, promote the critical mass needed uh, to ensure its effectiveness, but also further raising uh, fairness and equity uh, concerns. Um, of course, protecting the privacy of information uh, is always a concern when third parties are involved, which is why we were very pleased that COVID alert uh, was dedicated to a single purpose, which is exposure notification, and is structured as a way so as not to collect more information than reasonably necessary uh, to perform that function. The federal privacy assessment clearly stipulated and explicitly stated that Google app Apple would not have access to the data, and my office recommended and was and the Ontario government agreed to cooperate uh, with their federal counterparts to continually monitor third-party components, including Google, Apple, to identify any changes that may alter the, the level of privacy risk and uh, affect the implementation of COVID alert in Ontario or in any way change the uh, risk calculus that we had assessed based on the information that was available uh, in the privacy impact assessment uh, that we saw. And, and, the, and the government, uh, the Ontario government committed to um, bringing to my office's attention any purported change in purpose or design and uh, to update the PIA uh, accordingly. So a number of uh, countries, uh, in addition to Canada, have launched or are preparing to launch uh, the Apple-Google API. So we'll certainly be monitoring the news following uh, scientific evidence uh, from uh, other jurisdictions to see their experiences as well um, and, to, uh, and to monitor uh, to see if, uh, if any problems arise. Okay. So let's hope there aren't many problems, but if there are, it's notable that you called for, you've called for a complaints mechanism for individuals as part of this. You know, how do you see that playing out? And I guess it begs the question about what law would apply uh, if someone were to want to file a complaint. So um, the MOU uh, requires, and this was one of our recommendations, so we were pleased to see um, that it requires that the Ontario public be informed about the possibility for individuals to file a complaint about the app, so uh, that there be a process for complaining about uh, the app generally, including access issues, uh, utility, functionality, etc. Um, but if the complaint relates more specifically to privacy or security with respect to the app's use in Ontario, then again, Ontarians should be aware that they can complain uh, to my office. Now, which law would apply uh, would depend uh, very much on the subject matter of the complaint and the, and the circumstances, I'd imagine. Uh, but a couple of things, uh, certainly at a provincial level, although the app doesn't collect any personal information per se, uh, it, it, it does uh, work together with the provincial systems, such as the Ontario's lab results viewer, that interface with the federal structure infrastructure supporting uh, the COVID alert app. And the Ontario lab results viewer uh, contains personal health information, which, of course, is subject to PHIPAA. So 
even though the uh, app itself may not collect personal health information, it does interact with public health components, which are provincially regulated um, and do collect personal health information, which will be subject to uh, Ontario's laws. And therefore, individuals would have the right to complain should uh, any issue arise, which hopefully uh, not many will. Yeah, let's hope not. The, the bottom line question that many people have been asking since the app was released a week or so ago is whether or not you've installed it. So uh, I know I've been asked that many times, and I guess I wanted to ask you as well. Have you installed the app, and would you encourage others to do so? So, yes, I have. In fact, I did the very first day it was launched. And you know me well enough, Michael, as you said. We've known each other a long time um, to know that I am not... Uh, you know, I'm not a Facebook user, I don't use Twitter, WhatsApp, Instagram, Snapchat, or any other uh, such platforms. So uh, that's by personal choice. But this app I definitely uh, wanted to download and use, and I thought it was important, particularly if I'm going to tell Ontarians that I believe robust privacy and security safeguards have been built into the app, then I should be among the first uh, to demonstrate my trust in it. And, you know, I was, I was actually thinking about this while I was walking my dog along the Greenbelt here in, in Toronto yesterday, passing uh, um, by many other dog walkers, joggers, cyclists, wondering how many of them had downloaded the app, how many signals were passing back and forth between my phone and, and others' phones along this very busy path. It was actually a beautiful day yesterday. Um, and I thought, well, I hope many people had, and many pro people probably have, and I hope more do. And I thought about, you know, there's, in a sense, there's not much to lose if you can receive more information that might help you and your family uh, help, uh, helpfully avert um, fatal danger uh, in some cases. But I think the real stress test uh, will be to see how many people who've tested positive will then trust the app enough to enter this one-time key code in a, in a more, I'd say, selfless act to help alert others to the risk. Uh, I imagine you probably at that stage need incrementally a little bit more trust at that point. But then again, uh, I think people who've tested positive are in a context, a different context, working through the contact tracing process with health providers, agonizing, trying to remember who they've been in contact with, working with public health officials, um, and really acutely sensitized at that point as to how serious this pandemic really is. And I think that people would be uh, in that situation genuinely moved to do their part and help contain the spread of the virus for the benefit of others and society as a whole. So I hope that, that they too uh, will, uh, would uh, agree to download, um, to enter that one-time key and, and to uh, help us identify um, other phones uh, with which they may have been exposed. Yeah, no, thanks for that. I think you're right. I think the, there, there's, in a sense, two stages to the challenges here. One is to is to raise awareness and, and see if people are willing to install the app, but then even more, uh, should someone test positive, whether or not they're willing to insert that, that code. And that, I think, speaks as well to the effectiveness question. So it's not a... It, effectiveness will, I think, ultimately have to, to have to ride not just on whether or not enough people install it, but also whether or not people are willing to use it uh, by following through on uh, entering their their key 
should they find themselves testing positive? And so that's a, that's a question, I suppose, that will play out over the months ahead. Uh, Commissioner Kasim, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.